Welcome to the International Schools Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Taylor. And I'm your co-host, John Mickton. Join us every two weeks for conversations with international school leaders, educators, and innovators who are working and engaging in the world of international school education. And finally, just to say a huge thanks to our valued partner, Fariah Education Group. We'll jump back in later in the podcast to give you some more information about Fariah Education Group. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the International Schools Podcast. I'm here with my co-host, John Mickton. How are you today, John? I'm good, and you're in Bahrain right now. I saw those I'm pictures ba- of Bahrain. helicopters and uh, barbed yeah. wire and playing golf. What a setting. I know. It was like with nodding donkeys, oil fields all around. It was. It's interesting, you know. I've been here a few days, uh, a week, actually, with a family. We're going to have at least a month here. Really interesting, you know, really interesting countries and island just off of Saudi Arabia. I'm going to be visiting Saudi Arabia for the first time. Um, so it's a new country for me. I've been to a lot of countries in the Middle East. Um, I'd like to visit them all. And uh, yeah, interesting place. You know, it's an island, um, a very small place, you know, but really, really interesting. You should definitely visit if you get the chance. A lot of international schools here as well. Cool. Well, today yeah. we have the uh, pleasure and honor of having Dr. Park, who is the founder of the DQ Institute, which is the Digital Intelligences Institute, and they have been doing much work with the World Economic Forum, the World Bank, UNESCO, uh, and also the OECD. And she has just released a book called IQ, EQ, DQ, New Intelligences in the AI Age, which we're going to talk about. And if you've not read it, it's a must get. So go to your Amazon or wherever you like to get your books. And what we'll really uh, spend some time is uh, talking about this concept of cohabitation with AI, privacy, and digital citizenship, and just the challenges that human beings face with the accelerated change of technology and how that's reshaping uh, the social contract that we have with ourselves, our companies, and our governments. And I know Dr. Park will have a lot to share on that. And now we'd like to say a few words from our valued partner and sponsor, Fariah Education Group. Fariah Education Group has been with you through thick and thin, helping international schools minimize headaches and easing transitions. Whether through paperless admissions with OpenApply, curriculum-first learning with ManageBack, or school-to-home management with SchoolsBuddy, Fariah has been your partner. What's more, Fariah has been expanding with additional services, including professional development for international school educators. MiniPD is a professional learning platform by practitioners for practitioners. With a global community of learners and coaches, MiniPD makes the learning experience more personal, flexible, and equitable. Looking for a PD solution for your school or something for yourself? Sign up for an individualized coaching and enjoy a 10% discount using the code ISPODCAST. Head over to app.minipd.com. That's app.minipd.com to book your personal learning coach today. MiniPD, embracing the learner in every educator. So, Dr. Park, a huge honor and privilege to have you here today. Welcome to the podcast. And uh, if you wouldn't mind just kind of giving us a little bio, kind of a little journey of, uh, you know, how did you get to where you are today? Um, First of all, John, thank you so much for your kind invitation to this important podcast. Um, Yes, my name is Yuxiong Park. I'm founder of DQ Institute. 
Um, I, I don't know where to start about my journey. Um, um, I'm trained as a statistician. I did a PhD in Harvard and I worked uh, as a postdoc in Harvard Public Health and Medical School. So my research back then was on uh, developing the algorithm for DNA chips and cancer research. And then I moved out of academia and joined the Boston Consulting Group where I experienced tech and media industry. So I started this my journey of social impact journey uh, in 2010 um, in Korea. Um, my organization name called Infolution Zero, which means that information pollution zero around our children. So it was started as a child aligned protections um, in 2010. And uh, I, I actually shared my personal story, how I started this, this, the NGO. Um, I wrote it in the book, but uh, it's, it's, it's quite personal story. But long story short, I started the social impact as a more of a concerned and angry mother to protect our children from the cyber risk like gaming disorder, uh, inappropriate content, risky contact and cyberbullying, privacy and more. So um, if you think about 2010, there was a time that this awareness about that cyber risk was low. Um, and uh, um, when people see a newspaper about the cyberbullying and suicidal uh, incidents because of that or gaming addictions and more, they consider back then as a story of some bad children. Um, so uh, it is more about the, like some incidental cases for the bad students and bad educations or bad company. Uh, but what I wanted to tell the world through the book is not about the bad, few bad kids or few bad companies or few bad parents or teachers. It is this whole cyber risk issue is more systematic rather than episodic. Um, and um, what we want to address as a social impact journey is about the you know, technology and how we want to um, have uh, educations to address this speed gap between technology and the human response. Uh, technology moves very fast and our education compared to that, we are rather slow. How can we, how can we bridge that gap? That's where the DQ comes from. And it has been 10 years and last year, last year 2020, uh, DQ digital intelligence became the global standard for digital literacy and digital skills and digital readiness. So um, that's kind of the story that I had in the last 10 years. I hope Fantastic. That <laughs> that's perfect. And maybe tell us a bit about this global standard, because I know this is a huge step uh, that the, uh, basically we as a, a, a world have agreed to a standard on how we're going to navigate, navigate digital literacy and citizenship. So talk a bit about what is that global standard? What does that mean for people? Sure. Um, I developed the, the concept of digital intelligence in back in 2015 uh, I, I, when I worked at the university called the Nanyang Technological University. What I observed is that you know, a lot of time we talk about the cyber risk issue. We, we see the social media issue, privacy issue, and more. And um, so a lot of parents and teachers, the first reaction is that how we can stop this, right? But at the same time, you know, after COVID even more, um, 
technology is not an optional, you know, like all the children's and all the students have to live in this digital world and they have to be active part of digital economy. So this is huge uh, predicament for the parents, teachers and children. We, we know their risk. We know how we don't know how to avoid it. But at the same time, they have to live in this digital world. So I, I um, try to create the concept of digital skills beyond just coding or technical skills. Uh, I want to develop the school of thought of digital skills as a new intelligence, you know, uh, like IQ and EQ. You know, now we are living in the AI age. What is a new intelligence? that you know, enables any individuals to drive in this age of you know, AI or force industrial revolutions, digital age, whatever we call. So I developed this concept of digital intelligence that is like overarching frameworks that includes any competency, all competency, technical, cognitive, social, emotional, uh, metacognitive, all competency that enables individuals to drive for um, uh, driving this force industrial revolution and AI age and more. So um, if you look at the uh, come to the Institute.org, you can see the frameworks. But um, it is very simple frameworks that go from the digital identity, use, um, safety, security, emotional intelligence, uh, literacy, rights, and communication and more. And we look at the three different tiers of maturity, maturity models. The first is about digital citizenship, which is about how you live safely, responsibly, ethically. It's like a must have the life skill. And then when you know how to live online, that the next level is creativity. You know how to create. Codings, makers, and all others can be part of this. And then the third piece is about the digital competitiveness, which is actually translating creativity into the values, innovations, um, impact, and more. So uh, it is very simple about A times three, DQ24 competencies. And then uh, I published it at the World Economic Forum back then. And then it, become, uh, it was picked up by a lot of nations and industries. And then 2017, um, we started to discuss, and I got a call from the IEEE Standard Association, which is the world's biggest association that defined the technology uh, standard. And they called me and say, hey, Yushan, we look at the, uh, more than 100 literature to find the industry standard for digital skills. Uh, they found uh, DQ is comprehensive, but they want to create it as an uh, industry standard. So um, I invited the World Economic Forum and OECD to make it as a global standard of bridging education and technology all together um, so to serve as a common language for to define the digital skills. So that's kind of the background of how it became the global standard. What does it mean to the, the schools? It's actually giving the frameworks and thinking frameworks about when you think about the digital skills in your school, what is what are the things that you want to teach in your class? So it is not just about the teaching them about the, um, the uh, blockchain. It is not just thinking about uh, this coding. It gives the holistic frameworks of how you want to develop the curriculum as well as the learning programs um, based on the global standard. Fantastic, okay. and that's that's an amazing uh, 
journey in the sense that you have such important organizations understanding the importance of your work. And I think that's what's really so interesting is that you have global organizations that are saying, hold on here, this is really important, having these digital skills and digital intelligence. Dan, we can't, you have a lot of background noise that is actually drowning us. Okay, out. sorry. Okay, yeah, sorry, Dan. Uh, but I think you, you in, in your, uh, I want to transition to your book because in your book, IQ, EQ, DQ, New Intelligence and the AI, you come up with two really strong concepts that really resonated with me, was the idea of cohabitation with AI, is as human beings, who wants to be in control? And you have many anecdotes, and there is this underlying current in the book about the importance of making sure that humans are in control and that we understand the ethics and the responsibility we have as we develop AI, that there's an ethical component. And you really highlight this importance of the human. Who is in control? Why the book now? Why that message now and not, say, five years ago? Or why do you think today it's so much more important? And maybe it's because the publishers or whatever, but somehow it just seems so timely, this idea of the cohabitation with AI. Well, I think COVID helped us to understand that, you know, like we are very much not in ready. Um, and after COVID, you know, we are forced, whole world is forced to the fast digitization. If you think about it, you know, um, learning is, is on the digital, working is on the digital, and there, it's, it forced us to be in the digital economy in very fast scale, uh, fast speed and a large scale. But my question is, are we ready um, to be in the fully digitized society? Um, we may be ready in technology-wise, but we are not ready in human-wise. That's what I meant by the speed gap. And a lot of time when we have a speed gap, we just give up. Uh, we don't know what to do. Um, and sometimes uh, many, actually even leaders, um, think that AI is a solution. AI, we treat the AI like a god. <laughs> and somehow they know the right answer. That's what people think. But what we are, uh, what I want to address is that it is so important for us to think about um, how to create the inclusive society that everybody in in this the world can be ready to live in the digital um, world in a safe and well with the well-being, right? Um, and and that part is a so important question, but we didn't really address that. So, for instance, if you, it's like um, several, it, it was it very recent that Facebook changed their name to Meta and say they're going to shift to the Metaverse. And uh, there's a, so many new revolutions comes out in technology-wise. So, it's like a moving into new universe, right? It's a digital universe. But if you think about if you're moving to, like, uh, um, you're in Bahrain. So, you're moving to, let's imagine you're moving to Bahrain, right? And the first thing that you're going to check is that is it safe for my children, right? Is, a is there a school there? Is your neighborhood is civic enough, right? That's the first thing that you're checking. But we didn't check that when we are moving into the digital world. We are somehow just believe that technology will serve to solve the problem, but which is not the case. 
So I think it's a, um, the, uh, what my book is trying to say is that how can I um, be ready for the fully digitized world? And what is actually competency we want to ensure every individual to have, especially starting from the, starting from the children? And I don't know whether I'm, I'm answering your question, but there's kind of that's a background that I want to think about um, ourselves, you know, like uh, how to critically thinking that, you know, we are moving into the right direction. But I think that's so important, the analogy that you shared about, you know, we go moving to Bahrain and, and that so often we look at the physical world around us to define if we're safe or it's appropriate. But we often are not aware that there are all these digital forces around us. Uh, you know, you join apps or maybe you move to Bahrain and you have to register or whatever it might be. And one of the things that I think that really is interesting in your book, you, ta you talk about this, this idea. It's almost like a Faustian relationship. We have drunk the nectar of technology, love it, but in kind of because we love it so much, we're sometimes maybe not as discerning or as critical or self-reflective on how it's impacting us. I mean, notifications is a great example. You know, when you're in a restaurant and somebody puts the phone on the table, even though they're not looking at it, the phone suddenly creates something. There, there's a message here is the phone has importance at the table. But if there are no phones at the table, it's a different. So those kind of nuances is something that I feel that you've really tried to address in your book. And maybe for you, what are some key lessons as you wrote the book and reflected on these things? What are some things that you walked away saying, wow, now that I've had this experience of writing the book and highlighting these things, what are some of your own personal learnings based on that process of writing and highlighting these very important aspects that are in the book? Uh, wow, this is deep, John. <laughs> uh, there are actually several things. Um, so it, it, I can go to the multiple dimensions, but when it comes to education, since we are talking about the, uh, I'm, you're a STEM teacher, um, Education-wise, a um, lot of teachers not, not feel they're not ready for the digital world, right? Um, and then I hear a lot from the teachers that, oh, my student's better than me when it comes to technology. And they actually step back. Uh, but if you think about TikTok, right? For instance, TikTok, it, it, it started from 2015 or something, 16, the last since five years, you know? So, and in all this, the, like you, you mentioned about social media and social media tactics to draw the people in. Um, it, it's actually born your, our generations as well as the younger generations, nothing new. Um, only, it, it is not only for the, the young people. So it is important for teachers to understand, take back your power. You know, like don't give away your power just because of technology because you feel afraid about the technology. I think it is so important for parents and teachers to be confident to be the teachers. So there is actually a new report released uh, that shows that um, you know, uh, uh, after COVID, they found that you know, like more um, middle-aged and more experienced teachers um, 
have a better learning outcome using even for the e-learning compared to young teachers who are much more tech savvy. So it is not about the technology, it's really the human aspect. So one thing I want to always want to tell the teacher is that don't step back because you don't feel like comfortable about the technology. Actually, you are the master of the class and you, you are the one who is actually um, having much more greater power than technology on students. So that's the first thing I want to share with the teachers. And when it comes to like technology addictions and others, you know, a lot of people are afraid of uh, all this the issue that we saw from the newspaper about the privacy concerns and um, and uh, um, addiction concerns and the cyberbullying and others. And one thing I wanted to tell is that uh, we should not afraid. You know, it is something that we can learn as a skills, and then we have to the active participants of this ecosystem and you make a voice to correct it. So it is important even for the social media, you have to know how to take the control back. You know, notification, you can turn the notification off. It is the simple digital skills, uh, but it is important for you to aware first what is important in your life, how you can actually prioritize your life to uh, for you to take the control of your life uh, within the context of digital economy and digital life. So um, again, um, you know, like it is, it is important that you aware first, you know, you can manage. Um, it is not something that you cannot do. Um, so take back your power. That's the first thing that I want to say uh, to the teachers. Great, Dan. Uh, I just, so yeah, I can't think about this. I'm really interested in the whole um, technology addiction, digital skills. I'm curious if you think uh, take, I'm taking like a very concrete example. If you think the situation is getting worse as your mobile phone becomes omnipresent as something you have to use. So I'll, get, I'll give you an example. Here in Bahrain, um, one of the COVID restrictions is it got rid of menus in restaurants. So every time you go to a restaurant, every, you get a QR code, every single person takes a picture of the QR code and then everyone's got their phone out. And then because they've got their phone out, you know, they're already doing things. And, and even, for example, I mean, I'm, I'm probably extreme, but my phone is my car key, it's my house key. Um, I have all, I don't use physical bank cards. I use that. Do you think that because this device and, and there's a lot of huge convenience, do you think that's accelerating technology addiction? I know, I know it's a very specific example, but it's something I'm kind of really interested in. About. Sure. I, I think, you know, we can demonize the technology by its misuse. You know, there's a, it yeah. is technology is part of our life. Um, again, I, I think it is emphasizing. That's why I put the digital citizenship who, that the skills that enable you to use <laughs> in a balanced, healthy, safe, and responsible way is kind of life skill. So once you have a life skill, it is like you, you are um, turning the stove, right, in a way, right? And it is, it, it is dangerous fire, but you know how to turn it on and you know how to turn it off. Likewise, you know, uh, you know technology, it, of course, is a different level and different, actually, the problem that is certainly existing in the social media and more. Um, I, I am chairing the Safety Council uh, in Asia Pacific and TikToks, and there are many issues that we have to solve in the, um, the, the company-wise and society-wise, regulation-wise. But personal level, your, your responsibility is to learn to be the digital citizen. And that skill is a, such an important skill and must-have skill for any age group, but unfortunately, it has been quite missing in the educations. Um, 
So this is a part I want to actually urge the esteemed educators like both of you to how we can ensure uh, to impart and empower individuals with the digital citizenship skill, uh, which will be enormously important. And then I'd love to support if there's anything I can support uh, the teachers. And, and Yuyun, one of the things that I think uh, Dan highlighted, and also you were mentioning, often educators and pe parents feel somewhat disarmed or mm -hmm. at a loss on how to engage with these topics. Partly with the accelerated change, they often feel they're not able to keep up. Uh, and, you know, this is often a common narrative. Or you don't even keep up, you just play. You just are part of, of the accelerated change and you just embrace it. What do you think are some messages to those parents that sometimes feel disarmed? They have, they, they have emotional fights with their children because there's too much screen time, not enough screen time. When do you give a phone to a child? You know, when do you give the iPad? I'm thinking of Dan who has two lovely little children. I'm just curious, you know, what is your own thinking about when is it appropriate to engage with technology? And I work with a lot of parents and that's the most common topic is how much screen time is enough? How do I feel so out of touch? I don't know what they're doing. Can I trust them? And I'm just throwing out a lot of things. What are you, some of your thoughts on this topic? This is a, a, this is a huge uh, question that every parent, every parents around the world asking the question, the same questions. So uh, you may know the um, it is already um, the removed from the Asian uh, the American Pediatric Associations that you know they suggest to limit the screen time under two hours for the um, uh, of, of for children's and also um, the the young uh, infants and other no screen time. But is it realistic? And the reason they actually uh, uh, remove it is because now this digital device and connectivity is so ubiquitous. And it only brings the frustrations to the parents having those regulations. Um, so um, it, it, that doesn't mean that it doesn't affect uh, this extended screen time impact on children's um, in not just children's and also adults in a, um, on health in mental health, physical health, and more. So it is important for us to change the narrative about the, okay, if you're playing too much game, you're bad kids. No, it is unhealthy for you. Um, so it is more about the health issue. And I see that too much screen time issue is about the um, public health issue. So, um, but if you think about after COVID, people stop talking about screen time because we are, <laughs> 24 hour surrounded by it. And it's kind of, uh, we don't even have a choice to escape from it. It feels like. Um, so um, that's where we are now, but that doesn't mean that it is healthy. So for the parents, you know, related to the how much screen time is, is, is enough, or um, I think we need to change the narrative, you know, what kind of the quality screen time that, uh, that that each one of us have you know we have we can check nowadays about how much screens used for the each different app is it for the learning is it for the entertainment is it for something essential talking with your grandparents and more is it for the communications so we have to think about you know how well we spend our time in digital world 
rather than just pure the number of screen time per se, because it is inevitable. But at the same time, it is important for the parents to understand what is the health impact without just being on the small screen constantly. Um, this is very important. And the second thing is about that when I talk with the parents, it is important and um, for children to have a good sleep. Um, I, I usually suggest that take out the device from the, their, their, their bedroom. Let it alone is giving them a better score and better sleep and better performance in every dimension. Just let alone. Just take out the device. Device means computers, uh, mobile, TV, laptops, whatever. Then, you know, they were going to have a much better sleep to start with. Is it, 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 let alone is a big battle. If it is about the teenagers, you know, they will say blah, 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 blah. But parents uh, also take back your power. It is important, um, you know, checking snap, it's less important to have a quality sleep. So um, we want the digital parenting to start as early as possible. Um, if you come to dkinstitute.org and if you come to, uh, if, you, if you see my book, there are several parenting tips I gave, but I want to always start from the day uh, 101. Number one, you need to have um, the family rule, media rule that actually goes both way. You, uh, not just children, all the parents are now addicted to the technology and look at our life cycle, how much uh, time that you're using the uh, YouTube, Netflix and more. So um, if you want to control your children's screen time, you also have to control your screen time and having the family rule. Number one, sleep well, no device. At <laughs> no device. Actually, I can give you tons of evidence how the device next to your bed can affect negatively your health uh, in, in mental, physical, in all level. Number two, eat together without device. Just having those basic rule. And number three, try to balance your online and offline life. And number four, check your um, time, how quality time that you spend and you talk with your children. Number five, when there's a, a problem, you should be the first one that your children should come to. That's very important. It is not about the filtering program. It's not about monitoring program. Trust between the children and parents is the best predict, uh, best protection of children from the whatever risk they are going to confront with. So even just having this one-on-one of this five rule, that is a good starting point for you to have the confidence in your, your digital life. I'm not saying it is easy. It is a very huge battle with your your children, but start as young as possible. Thank you, Dan. I'm just curious, as you you know, with you're very tech savvy and you're in the IT industry and education industry. When you hear Dr. Uh, Park speak, you know, and and with your own children, what are some of your own thoughts? Because my kids are adults, so I can't do anything anymore. Yeah, it's uh, she's absolutely right. I agree. I mean, it, it's it's the part you've got to look at yourselves because we are definitely you know guilty of this. Like sometimes we'll be you know in the evening we'll we'll have a phone out, we'll just be looking at something on the phone, or have a laptop out. Uh, and we're pretty good about not doing it during meal times and and um, but yeah, 
exactly right. It's about looking two things you said really resonated. One is it's it's you've got to regulate your own use because children will mirror your behavior to some extent. You know, so if you're always on the phone or the laptop, they'll. I mean, I took my daughter; she's only two years old, and she already knows to pick up the phone and say hello, hello, hello. You know, she she, she knows she does that like a toy, and um, and also the, the, the you know the bedtime. Uh, but I think even that's difficult because we always end up watching Netflix on the laptop in bed every day. You know. And I know all that I've, I've read some of the research you said about it negatively impacts you having a device in the bedroom. But I think you, you, ha- you, you have to take responsibility as a parent to regulate your own use. That, that's everything comes from there. And secondly, what you said about your children have to come to you first. I mean, John, I don't know if you experienced this, but, you know, because your children were older, that if, if you managed to convince, you know, to, to, to get through to them, if they had a problem online, you know, you were the first person they came to. Uh, absolutely, because my thing with my kids, and I think uh, Yuyun has said that so nicely, is I wanted them to know whatever news they brought to me, it would not get an angry response. It would be, how can I help? Let me understand. So it was seek to understand before seek to uh, ad- advocate or make a decision. And so we very quickly developed that as that began and sometimes my kids brought me news and you could see my uh, my blood boil and bless my wife who is far more zen and calm it was like we're going to have bigger battles to fight let's there are going to be much bigger and it's about picking the battles and you know not that we were perfect in any way but uh one thing is we never let uh, and this is quite a few years ago, was at the beginning of this whole thing, is we had a digital basket. We did not let kids take devices up to the bedrooms. They had a basket in the kitchen, and if they needed to contact their parents, they would come to us, and then we would do the phone. So what we tried to do is when they were not within our reach, the kids that were visiting my kids and play dates, we really made sure technology was not part of that dynamic because we might have a, a moral or a perspective on how to manage that, but we never could really understand what everybody else was doing. So, and, and I feel blessed because the devices were not per, so persuasive that we wouldn't have had phones around the dinner table. But I know when we're in restaurants with my two adult children, you know, you, you definitely have the phone. The menu is a great example. You know, in Switzerland, you can't get a menu without scanning. So once the phone's on the table, notifications. So I think, Dan, your point's a really important one. I think, as Dr. Park says, it's so complex and so demanding to navigate this. And I love your five rules. I think those are so powerful. What is really powerful about them? They're very doable. It's not like you have to move a mountain. It's about a lot of self-reflection and just balance, I think, in this idea. What was interesting, you were used the word healthy. That's a very different narrative. That's far easier to talk about health than this is bad and good. And I think that's something that really resonated uh, for me. And I know, Dr. Park, you were often talking in your book about your experience in South Korea, because there, there has been that uh, connectivity at a much higher level and much sooner than maybe what we got in the West. And I know that really impacted your first NGO. Do you feel today that that has equaled out? In other words, the type of usage of technology that you saw in South Korea that you talk a lot about in your book, which was pretty much everywhere, do you see that now more of a global thing? And it's the playing fields evened out, not for the good, but that 
maybe nowadays we all are dealing with things that maybe some of the South Korean community was dealing with before us. Sure. Um, and um, we published the first actually global report uh, with the World Economic Forum in 2018. To sh um, and the title was actually Outsmarting the Cyber Pandemic. I, I, now the pandemic is not a popular word, per se, I, I know. But the reason I, I put the cyber pandemic is because, you know, we found that at the time you look at about the, um, more than 20 countries around the world and look at the cyber risk exposure of children. And what we found is a very consistent across the culture, across the regions, and we found that 56% of eight to 12 years old children have experienced at least one cyber risk. It is not exposed to cyber risk. It's every children may be exposed to cyber risk. It's 56% children have experienced at least one cyber risk, including cyber bullying, gaming disorder, um, symptoms, as well as uh, a risky contact and violent contact and uh, uh, the cyber threats and more, misinformation and more. So if you think about this, it's 8 to 12, these are primary school students. And offline meeting is um, around 10% to 20%, and the cyberbullying is about the 40% to 50%. And if you look at this actually very consistent pattern around the world, you know, what I observe in Korea, Yes, you're right. You know, we observe in a very early stage compared to what is now we see everywhere in the world. It's very consistent because you know how we use and uh, um, the, how the digital technology is actually have been deployed their technology into the society is similar, and what we see the outcome of it are similar. So it is very important for us to see that this is actually the global health issue. And it is something that we have to deal with in a, a very multi-pronged way. So it is not just about the um, parents and teacher issue. It's also societal uh, responsibility. Government have to put the right regulations. I'm very glad to see that there's new uh, online safety act starting from the UK, US, Australia, and more uh, is coming up. And uh, um, it's also social, uh, social responsibility of technology. And now the technology company have to have a transparency on how the algorithm work and how they protect minors and more. So I would love to see more to come to ensure that our ecosystem is getting healthier, especially for the protection for the children and minors. How do you then navigate, so you bring up the technology companies that a lot, if you look through the pandemic and look at the stock market and profit margins, technology companies, the pandemic has been a silver lining and they've never done so well. What responsibility do you feel these technology companies have to support this narrative and be proactive? Because the like, the TikToks, the Snapchats, there is, you know, there is a benefit to our addiction and this dopamine hunger that we have. What a, talk a bit about your own, because you do talk about in your book some of your contacts with technology companies and governments. What are some things that you're seeing maybe in your space that technology companies might be starting to be more aware, more proactive? Um, I think it's so important for a technology company to also take the leadership on this um, because um, the rate of speed of technology actually company is moving is such so such such 
faster, you know, much faster than in how government and education field can move into. It's just by nature. So it is important for, it's not like a, you know, a catch me if you can. It's more about, they need to have their um, ethical principle, moral principle have to be embedded in their business plan and their business model and their business practice and principle. So I think it is so important for and technology to take the leadership. In order to make this happen, I think I know we need to be aware customers because at the end of the day, it is our responsibility for the individual as a customer, as a user, to see how we can have our technology company to serve us as an individual with the human dignity, right? It is not like we are not um, the user that they, they can exploit our the personal data and more, right? So I think users have to be aware, but technology company have to take the leadership on this. And I am pretty sure that they are aware of this, this issue and they will work together with the government and the civic sectors and schools and more. And another thing that is very important for technology company is their responsibility uh, uh, for the education sectors, because I think it is uh, digital skills is, is so important. And they're the one who have the best knowledge and competency to impart, uh, to equip the teachers, students, and parents to have the right digital skills uh, for to make a better ecosystem. And I'm, I'm sure that technology company are very well aware of their responsibility. And I see that a lot of the big tech is moving into the direction, but we hope that, you know, their involvement is more strategic and more systematic and also supporting strategically on global south and more and to make it more inclusive digital ecosystem. Well, that's great. And I, I think, you know, you actually are now seeing, and Dan, you might have some things to share on this, is this Apple's, you know, their whole thing is this privacy matters. So that's kind of their new tact. I don't know what you think, Dan, about that approach. And you work very closely with Google. What are your some thoughts about this idea of technology companies' uh, responsibility. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think you're right. They have to, I mean, Apple have made some good moves in this. I think Facebook are not very happy about it because it's really disrupted their ad model. Um, I, you know, I hate, I hate to be pessimistic, but I'm just not convinced that technology companies are going to do the right thing. Yeah. I, think, I, I, they, I think they will do the right thing if the profit motive dictates it, if they, if they really think they're going to lose money. But, you know, I don't, think there's actually a lot of altruism even though i love all these companies i you know i'm a google partner i work with google apple all these products i, I like them i'm just not you know i i just don't feel much optimism uh, i think if we can make market forces so that it benefits them to to respect privacy things it will happen yeah it, uh, and, and another thing is about since you brought up the facebook and, and we observed how facebook the stock price has plummeted plummeted yeah. after their, their scandal yeah. issue uh, the uh, minor safety issue. Um, what actually that tells us is that now the world is going into the trust is the biggest capital they can have. Um, and it is very important for users to be aware that they have also power. Um, and we are not like receiving as just as they give whatever they like to give. So um, in the sense that digital citizenship of users is very important because we need to be aware and a co-creator of the ecosystem rather than we just receive the, the what is it, the services. 
So um, you're absolutely correct. There is uh, so much that we can work together to improve the ecosystem, and it started from the individuals also. Yeah. I think the message that you share is this idea of co-creation is so important. Instead of being kind of a, a silent partner and just receiving it, and in your graphic, if you go to the DQ Institute site, you'll see that there are these three pillars. And the, the idea is after digital citizenship, you want to be co-creating more than consuming. And one thing that I notice so often, many of the children that I work with and our staff, we notice they're very good consumers of technology. We always think, oh, they're so agile, but they actually don't know the dynamics and the nuances of the apps that they're working with, or let alone the privacy settings. So I think what you're saying is so important is we need to be co-creators of this narrative. And I think so often I hear teachers and parents say, well, I can't do anything about it. I can't fight Facebook. I can't fight Snapchat. I personally think I disagree with that. And actually I say, well, look, we have the DQ Institute. Here's some uh, frameworks that we can work with to engage in this. What do you say to people when they just throw their arms up and say, but how are we gonna fight the Facebooks and the TikToks of this world? Start not using it. <laughs> yeah, so, no, very simple. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Start and, not yeah. using it. And then yeah. actually it is it is very important that in like, um, and this is what I actually wrote the book. Um, sometimes we need to ask a question, why do we develop the technology? And you know, technology is only meaningful when it enhances humanness. That's what I actually core believe. It is not just my core belief, it's actually everybody's core belief. And when we talk about AI and all this, and this is some of the things that I always say is that, and I have also two kids. And then, you know, like we are telling the children that, oh, you have to compete against AI and you need to have a soft skill to compete against them. And I, I don't understand that. Why are we putting our, our children's compete against our own invention? You know, technology is our own invention, right? So like a lot of times we just confuse with what we created and what we are worshiping. And sometimes technology becomes our master to worship. But actually, it is our invention still within our control. And it actually starts with the individuals to go up all the way to the um, presidents of the countries and CEO of company, right? And we have to be very mindful about what we are creating and how a kind of uh, well, technology that we are creating. Your teachers, I'm a, I'm a just a, a Institute founder, but every individual have our role. And then when we have those, uh, the public consensus, building public consensus, starting with our own spheres of influence to understand, you know, how we should manage and control the technology should be the starting point. And I think it is so important for us to have this idea to actually the children. And I always say, you know, whenever people ask me about the, um, what do I think about AI? You know, like I, I'm trained as a statistician and uh, I, a long time ago, I, I worked in the AI field and now uh, AI is, you know, a lot of time we treat the AI as kind of God. Oh, but actually, if you think about it, it's a bunch of, uh, of course, it's advanced technology and it is much more, um, it's getting more and more advanced and which is inevitable. But if you think about it, we need to um encourage children and students to demystify technology. It started with the linear algebra. It started with your, your classroom teaching the linear algebra from the very elementary or you know, middle school. 
And then, you know, like we need to enable the students that, you know, technology is our invention. And then you can also be the co-creator of the invention and you can control it. And related to the parental and all this, the frustration, I fully understand, right? But, you know, like it's, it can start with very simply, I don't use Facebook anymore. And then I, I actually talk to my children about this impact of technology on children. I impact and I, I talk with our, my network about my concern. And you talk with the, whenever you the walk with the politician and say, hey, I, this is our concern. And it has to be part of our, our, our policy and national policy. And you can actually uh, talk with the technology company. And, and there's so many things that we actually can do if you are really concerned. Um, so it is really about take back your power. Take back your power starting from the knowledge, knowledge starting from the education. So I think it's a, you have a great responsibility to start it. Absolutely. And I think so often uh, we underestimate that responsibility as educators and people in the education technology space, that there is that narrative and we need to be empowered and we do have such an impact. And I like the way you say we need to demystify AI. There's a bit of kind of this magic behind it, but you're right. It's a bunch of, you know, ones and zeros and codes and algorithms. And it's a bit about like, you know, we learned how to read and write. Well, we should actually understand. Maybe we don't all need to be coders, but we all need to understand what makes coding tick, what runs AI. And I think so often we just, as you said so rightly, Dr. Park, it, it's, it's not magic. It's actually something that humans create and we have a certain amount of control. Dan, any thoughts on that kind of the idea of the AI? Yeah, there's a couple of things. I mean, one is, I mean, I think just as educators, it really emphasizes the fact that, you know, I'm definitely the belief that children should all have some basic technical education because if you essentially have entirely no technical knowledge, I mean, AI, and computers it's essentially witchcraft like they could be goblins inside this laptop telling you what to do and and, and, I, and I know plenty of people like that who don't have the faintest idea about application layers and basic things and, and, and algorithms so I, I think it's just so important to I don't know what you think Dr. Park but just getting some basic education for children so so that it's it's not so it is demystified you know I mean everyone has a different level you know some children want to be programmers some some want to be a dancer so but it, i think even the child that wants to be a dancer has to develop uh you know a, tech, a certain amount of technical knowledge to navigate the world yeah it's it's one of the key you know you learn how to read write and do mathematics well guess what you need to know how to have a d digital intelligence i think it's now become like your book is you say iq eq dq those are some of the three pillars of being a human being and navigating the world is that the idea of having the three in the title, IQ, EQ, DQ? Um, I, I wrote it in my book, and I was actually thinking about, you know, looking at the history, and then the, what is actually societal um, changes, uh, brings the changes in um, educations. So um, one thing that I found is that what is a human? In a lot of times, uh, when we, when I am involved in this technology ethics and educations and more, the the last question, regardless scientists, engineers, or um, global leader CEO, the last question that we all ask is, what is human? You know, in this age of AI. But if you think about the human, we, you know, like 
we usually say human has a three components, body, mind, spirit, right? And uh, um, if you think about the first and second revolutions, industrial revolution, when the machines and uh, the factory actually came in, in a mechanical machine, that is the first time that we found that, you know, our machine can do better physical work than ourselves, right? So that's where the IQ was born because society needs smart children who can work in the, in the, the factory in a very effective way. And then, you know, like third industrial revolution happened where the computer is built and people come to the city and the complexity of the human interaction has increased. And it's, it's, it's very interesting. The EQ was born right around the time. So when technology evolved, societal uh, dynamic change, and then society needs different level of intelligence. Um, and that's where those, the people who have those intelligence can succeed in that society. So I was actually thinking about what is this? And now we, are, uh, we have entered into force industrial revolutions. And then if you think about it, you know, like machine replace our physical strengths and then AI now actually um, replacing our mental work, right? What, what do I leave? <laughs> a spirit. And what is spirit? Nobody knows, right? Some people called it agency. OECD called it agency. And some people called passion. Some people called uh, Asian calls chi. And we have all different names, but that actually tells us who we are as a human. But I, I think it is a very important element of the spirit is a community about relationship, about uh, people like interacting with each other. And this is a very important component that we have to think about. So DQ is about the, like, you, I, I love how you uh, phrase it, um, John, cohabitance with AI, but it's also cohabitance with our fellow human being in the, in the context of the AI age. And what is actually the knowledge that we have to have? What is the competence we have to have? Skills, attitude, and, and more. So that's what, actually, that's why I put the IQ, EQ, and now we, have, we need a DQ in the, in the AI age. And I'm so curious what's going to be the next two letters here in 20 years time. <laughs> we'll come back and have a podcast on that. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Dan, any uh, closing questions? I think we, we've had such a rich conversation, but I know our time is soon up here. No, that was really, really interesting. I think it was a great way to finish it. So yeah, yeah, nothing for me. Thank you, Dr. Park, for your time, your wisdom, and really hats off to you to all the work that you and your team have done, uh, being connected to many educators. I know this is a very rich resource. Uh, we have our fifth graders that have their DQ cards on their desks, and uh, I teach a grade okay. six, and we always start with the eight DQ cards, and we whatever we do, we said, what card might you use? And uh, it's so interesting how kids can really connect mm -hmm. to this because it really makes sense to them. There's purpose. And I think this work is something that I really invite our audience and listeners to make sure to go to the show notes. Dr. Park's uh, biography is there and you can also uh, follow her on social media. And then of course, <clears throat> links uh, from the DQ Institute and her book, IQ, EQ, DQ, New Intelligences in the AI Age. Dr. Park, thank you so much for your time, and uh, we look forward to being in touch and connecting here when you're ready for the next two letters. <laughs> thank you so much, John, and then it was really, really fun, and thank you for having me. Thank you very much.